Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. Our next guest is the author of books including The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, The Awakenings, Awakenings, uh, which was also made into a movie with uh, Robin Williams, A Leg to Stand On, and a new volume called Island of the Colorblind. Will you please welcome neurologist Dr. Oliver Sacks to West Coast Live. Thank you very much for, uh, for being here on West Coast Live. And uh, I see that you're wearing a, a T-shirt that says uh, Royal Botanic Gardens Q, which of course is a, is a beautiful spot right in London. What is your, uh, how did you begin with an interest in botany? Um, well, it, um, our garden was full of ferns when I was a kid, and I used to be taken to Kew Gardens, and I developed a love for ferns and cycads and primitive plants, which was uh, one of the reasons I went for my travels in Micronesia. Now, uh, and, and if you could explain for, for those who are bot- botanically impaired, um, uh, what is a cycad? Um, well, I was going to bring one with me. You know, I, I, I have a little traveling cycad, sort of one for the road on the, uh, on the East Coast. They are very primitive trees which were around 100 million years before the dinosaurs. Uh, they were the first seed plants. Some of them are the size of that, that water, and some of them are 60 foot high. And um, they, uh, they have ladies and gentlemen. The, um, the, the sexes are, are very separate. And um, a lot of them are very nutritious, as, as well as sort of being toxic, and people eat them. But they are beautiful, mysterious, ancient trees, and they're great survivors, and I love them. As a, uh, as a neurologist, is it, is it sort of a relief for you to see trees or, or ferns that, that don't, you know, have odd conditions? Um, well, they, they do have odd syndromes. And <laughs> I thought they might somehow. Don't complain about them. Um, um, but no, it, it is a relief, and, and the New York Botanical Garden is just opposite my hospital. I still work at the Awakenings Hospital after 30 years. Um, although there was a, a special complicated coupling in my recent travels, because one of the neurological syndromes I was looking at is supposed to be caused by eating cycads. Aha, uh-huh. so it comes full circle. What is that particular uh, uh, set of symptoms? Uh, well, it occurs on the island of Guam. The Chamorros, the native people there, call it litico-bodic, litico short for paralytico. One form of it is like ALS or Lou Gehrig disease. Uh, another form is like Parkinson's. Another form is like Alzheimer's. It's a, it's a sort of dreadful disease which is... Uh, and it's at one time it, um, it accounted for almost a tenth of the deaths there, and people have been very, very eager to work out the cause, um, not simply for the sake of the island, but because the disease is so similar in some ways to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and they think if they could crack the disease in Guam, it might give them a clue for, for the others. You're, uh, the, the book Island of the Colorblind takes place on different islands of the, of the South Pacific, and the whole realm of, of uh, tropical medicine uh, 
Yes, I know. It's just out there. If you look just beyond the coast, it's just right over, just over the horizon. You can see it. I saw that distant look on your face. And, uh... I was thinking about my experiences as well and what that climate means. And, and, and the whole climate of, of the tropics creates entirely different kind of medical problems and, and challenges. Uh, yes, well, well um, islands are special places and also isolated mountain valleys, but an island is, is isolated and um, the, it has peculiar forms of life. It tends to have peculiar animals and plants which are endemic, which are unique to it, and also diseases which are, which are unique to it. And, um, the, and certainly with the island of the colorblind, a very rare form of colorblindness, not the common red-green colorblindness, but total colorblindness, where you only see black and white. This is like one in 50,000 in the general population, but on the, this little coral atoll in Micronesia, it's thousands of times commoner. And uh, how did you hear of this condition being at this specific spot in the middle of the Pacific? Well, I, I asked a friend, you know, do you know an island of the colorblind? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, well, I should say this friend was a neurologist and he was on Guam, and um, though it was still a rather odd question, and he said, yeah, now you come to mention it. He says, there is one, a little coral atoll called Pingalap, not 1,200 miles from here. And so then I determined to visit it. So in a, in a way, an island is also, uh, sort of an, in epidemiological terms, a cluster. Uh, yes, it's a... Uh, yeah, it's a cluster, and, and it's a unique situation. It's a, a little world, and a, in a way, a simplified world. And when people feel they may have a chance of working out the special genetics or the special environmental factors. When, uh, is this a condition that exists from birth? Uh, the colorblind, this, 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 this particular uh, colorblind. Yeah, this particular colorblindness exists from birth. In this way, it's unlike the colorblindness I described in my last book, which. Uh, which occurred to a man, an artist in his 60s, and was due to a, a brain injury. And it was something which he found devastating because, because color had been so precious to him, and he suddenly lost it and found the world sort of very impoverished and, and gruesome and, uh, at first. Whereas, of course, these people have never known color, and I wondered how people who've never known color might, what their world would be like. One of, the, one of the last times we spoke, I recall you think, I, th I believe it was, you were, you were thinking of trying an experiment where you would temporarily become colorblind? Um, well, I, I'm afraid I didn't go ahead with that um, because a number of people who tried it started having seizures. Uh, and and uh, I thought I would let the technique be refined a, a little more. And, and uh, perhaps wait until uh, a little more uh, salubrious time for you to do that. What, uh, uh, one of, the, one of the interesting things about your, your chronicles, both of your own experiences uh, as, a, as a patient, as, a, uh, as an investigator, uh, is yeah. that... Uh, <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't realize I was nervously fiddling with it, and I, I thought I'd better put it, put it out of the way. I want you to know that Oliver Sacks just shot a rubber band into the audience here. <laughs> was that uh, you're, you're drawn to people for the... Uh, the peculiar sort of uh, sufferings of their conditions and how the conditions have changed them out of the norm of, of human existence. Um, but is your, is your interest in, in 
in how they cope with it individually or in, in the larger sort of uh, exploration of it as an illness, uh, as a medical condition to be treated? Uh, well, I think I'm interested in, in all sides. I, I mean, say with this color blindness, I'm interested in the particular conditions in the eye uh, which occur. For example, these people have no, we normally have three sorts of cones for seeing color. These people have no cones, they only have the rods which we use for night vision, and they have superb night vision, but you also need cones, not only for color, but for daylight. They get sort of dazzled a bit unless, but um, I wonder as a neurologist, what's happening in their brains, because a lot of the brain is devoted to, to perceiving color. What's happening with those parts of the brain? Nothing goes to waste. I think these people are often have heightened abilities to see tone and texture, brightness, edge. No one would wonder whether, whether the color parts of the brain have been reallocated you know, for, for other uses. But I then wonder what, it's, you know, what life is like for someone in this situation and how they fit in a, into a community. I wonder what sort of myths the community might have about the origin. I, I sort of wonder about everything and, and and I also wonder about rainforests and coral reefs and colonial history and, and the whole lot. <laughs> the whole lot got thrown into the, in, into the island of the colorblind. So it's, it's also part travel book. It's not just a medical document. Uh, it's an anthropological study. It's a, it's a travel document. I, it, one of the things that, that uh, struck me about it was your description of the brightness of the light and the vastness of the space in that part of the world. Uh, yeah, I, I'd never sort of you know, uh, been in the Pacific before, and uh, we we took an, an island hopper plane going from one island to another, but um, you realize how rare islands are. You know, with these, these tiny dots, sort of sometimes thousands of miles apart, it made me wonder how the, you know, what it must have been like for the Polynesians and the Micronesians in their, in their boats, often not knowing where they would go, and you know, and, and hoping they would make landfall, that they might find a benign island. And, um, but they were so rare. I mean, one has the feeling they were almost as rare as sort of planets in, in the cosmos. And what, uh, what myths did you find that explain this colorblindness? Um, well, um, some of them were myths of a, uh, of a god, a nocturnal god, who would come down and lie with some of the women and father, the and father sort of nocturnal, nocturnal children. Sometimes the notion was that pregnant women had walked on the beach and, and their unborn children had been blinded by the bright light. Um, but there were also myths of that this came from the outside. And um, now one of my fellow travelers was actually a Norwegian, a remarkable man who is a physiologist, who is an expert on this condition, but is also born with it himself. So this is a very exciting situation. He was sort of a bridge because he was one of us, but in a sense he was one of them. And there was an immediate sense of kinship and, and affinity, and also suspicion, which they, because this was the first time they'd seen an outsider with their condition. Could he have been the one who came in the night? Well, what they said, <laughs> well, Maybe, but, but, but they certainly felt that someone like him had come maybe in the 1820s. They said these are, these are colorblind white whalers from the north. 
They came here to Pingalap in the 1820s, and they gave us this. And so Knut suddenly saw himself and all people like him as, as, the, as the origin, and, and of course the Pingalapi is a partly Norwegian. There was, there was no similar story that one of these islanders hadn't made it to Norway and had perhaps given it to them you know, in some genetic passage? Um, well, maybe if one went with one of the Pingalapis to Norway. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice idea. Right. The, uh, and when you talk about your interest in the, uh, in the tropical forests there, uh, would you walk along just sort of gushing at what you would see, just overwhelmed by it? Um, Yes, I, I mean, I, I think one of the most wonderful things in the world is a, is a tropical rainforest. And, um, you know, in the, in the, the range of, of plants and was quite amazing. And one of the islands, Pompeii, there, there are more than 100 plants which are unique to the island and unlike anything one has seen anywhere else. Um, I went with a, a, a medicine man and he... He knew the position of every plant. He felt that everyone had had a, a medical or magical use, and um, but but I, I was in a sort of a sort of ecstasy with these forests, but also a sense of fear, especially on one island where I saw great swathes, sorry, <laughs> great swathes of cycad forests being cut down for golf courses, and this was a horrible sight, you know, these rare trees were being destroyed, but also all the earth was going down into the reef and killing it, and one just sees how, how fragile things are, and the feeling of, of the abuse one way and another of these beautiful islands was, was very much in my mind. Were the, the indigenous people aware of the damage being caused to the reef? Uh, yes, they're very well aware of this, the sort of fishing gets worse and, and everything gets worse. Um, but sometimes commercial interests override them. I mean, these places have lost their autonomy. They've been colonized sort of by, by Spain, by Germany, by Japan, by America, but also sort of commercial interests are very powerful. And their, their own political representatives may be, may be bought. So it's not only an island of the colorblind, but in some ways it's creating a culture of the ecologically blind. Oh, I, I, um, absolutely, and, and uh, there, was, there were many senses of, of ecological disaster. And, and right from the beginning, I, I sort of saw this. The, the first little place was called Johnston Island when you fly f down from Hawaii. And I thought this was going to be a little, a li a little paradise, but, it's, um, but when you get lower, you see it has a brown haze and sort of huge chimneys. And in fact, it's the biggest toxic waste dump on the planet, sort of nerve gases and other things are burnt there. Everyone has to carry a gas mask. One end of the island is radioactive. And it's, um, and it's sort of like, like hell. Did you get off the plane there? Um, I, I wanted to get off the plane. We, we, we had, in fact, sort of um, almost burst a tire when we landed. But we, it's a sort of military island. We weren't allowed to get off. Um, and. Uh, the um, you're, you're growing up and being aware of of, of botany and 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 sort of the uh, the range of life that could be categorized. It was in part a great English effort to bring order to the chaos of the world. Uh, certainly, Kew Gardens is very beautifully, very very laid out, very structured, very orderly. But 
the tropics are also a place of, of great chaos and, and um, out of control growth in some way. I mean, it, it's, it's not manicured in, in any sort of English sense. Um, well, I, I agree it's not manicured, but uh, I mean, what you see is the, is the order of nature and, and, and the harmony of nature and ecological order, which is, um, which is sort of um, you know, uh, immensely, infinitely orchestrated and, and complex. And, uh, and, the, and the danger to that. Um, but, uh, no, I, I do love sort of botanical gardens and, 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 and museums because they are repositories of, of human ordering. And um, I think they're rather in danger now. I think they sort of tend to be Disneyfied and so forth. Well, and certainly what you describe as going on on some of these islands is a disordering of the natural order of, of things by we human beings. What, uh, you've, you've written of the importance of, of music both in healing as well as in understanding uh, sort of how the brain works. What, what sort of music, what sort of sounds did you find on these Pacific Islands? Um, uh, sometimes very mixed sounds. On, on the little colorblind atoll, uh, the entire population has been converted to Christianity. They're all congregationalists. And I heard a lot of hymn singing, but the hymn singing was in a very Polynesian sort of Micronesian mode, very strange harmonies. I also got an odd feeling once when I saw children singing in the sun, I couldn't help feeling they were singing to the sun. And that's, you know, something sort of pagan and pantheistic and uh, was, was still very strong under the, the sort of veneer of, of Christianity. But, um, I think all the people seem to be natural musicians. I, 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 I think music is, is an absolute universal. And, um, and certainly on Guam, where the disease can make a lot of people Parkinsonian, it's very well recognized that, that music and singing can release people and people who can't walk, you know, can dance and people who can't sing. In your, uh, in your native country, there's been a lot of controversy about the, uh, the so-called uh, mad cow disease and, and prions and how it affects neurology. What is your uh, curiosity about this as a neurologist? Um, I am very curious and rather alarmed. You know, this all started, in a way, in another island in New Guinea when, um, where there's an in, uh, a terrible uh, disease called Kuru. Kuru uh, sort of impairs coordination and gives seizures and it kills people within months. And in some tribes, large numbers, especially of the women and children, were getting this. It, um, it required, you know, uh, an extraordinary person who was, who was Gadjusek, who is as much an anthropologist as a, as a virologist, to put things together and realize that they were, that there was some infectious agent uh, which was transmitted by eating brains. These are, these are cannibals. Um, the eating human brains. Um, uh, eating human brains, not the brains of their enemies. These are sort of the, really the brains of their beloved. And, um, you know, and, uh, and the bodies generally. Indeed, when people die, they will often will their bodies in different parts. They say, you, you know, my arm's for you. And so, so th th this is, this is a, a sort of loving cannibalism. Uh, um, 
so to speak. <laughs> um, but um, you know, when this was first described, people said, well, so there's sort of a bunch of Stone Age cannibals over there eating each other's brains, whatever, you know, they deserve it, so what? It's only a tragic curiosity. Uh, Gadgetek was, um, found this was due to a, a, an a, sl a different agent. He first called it a slow virus, and now people talk about prions, something which couldn't be destroyed in the usual way by heating or disinfectants or radioactivity, and which might stay in the body for years before it had an effect. And um, he said this, this may appear to be in a corner of the world, but um, uh, you know, there may be other diseases and widespread diseases due to agents of this sort. Watch out. Now, it was, um, it's known for a long while that sheep have a similar illness called scrapie, and minks can have it. And then, of course, um, when offal, when sort of bits of the sheep was with scrapie. Now, you know, one can eat sheep with scrapie. The thing can't make its way from sheep to man. Well, one of the startling things that I understand about this, uh, what is it, uh, uh, bovine and, uh, encephalopathy, of spongiform encephalopathy, is that, is that these prions have actually crossed species barriers. Well, well exactly. To, to humans. Um, yeah, they, they, they fed the cattle on sheep. There are now hundreds of thousands of cattle. And now there appear to be a dozen people with, um, there's a thing called Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is a hideous disease, usually affects older people, one in a million. But now there's been a whole bunch of cases, some of them even teenagers in England, and it's been found that this is in fact the same agent as they have in the mad cows and the bovine encephalopathy. And there's a lot of fear in England. And of course, Europe won't buy English meat. And um, the thing was denied by the government for 10 years. And um, I think it's a very worrying sort of situation. Um, th there's also been some feeding of sheep offal in this country. And if this thing gets afoot, you know, we will be in big trouble. And uh, England, in its own way, is, is an island which has been both its defense, but also it's now its isolation. Uh, will you go uh, right about the uh, the island of the uh, of the cows? Um, um, well, uh, I won't. But in fact, there is a very good book on the subject, which uh, uh, which is coming out by called Deadly Feasts by by Richard Rhodes. Uh, Richard Rhodes has, has also written very good books about the making of the atomic bomb. And I think he's he's dealt with it so well. I um, but since you bring it bring it up, I um, I you know I almost never review books, but I want to review this because I've just seen it. In fact, I have the book with me, um, <laughs> and um, I, I do think it's it's very important. You know, when I was a medical student 40 years ago, we we had we were had such hubris. We thought we'd licked infectious disease. You know, we've got antibiotics, and now one sees everything coming out, all sorts of resistant diseases, tuberculosis is, is epidemic in New York, new diseases apparently, like, like AIDS, which again may have crossed species barriers, and, and Ebola, and, uh, and now these fearful things due to prions or whatever, which, um, to which one can develop no immunity, which one cannot destroy, uh, which can persist for years, which can be eaten. Do you, uh, do you enjoy getting up in the morning nowadays? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I still enjoy it. And, uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, uh, it's both a frightening world, but also a, a, a mysterious one. And, and thank you very much for uh, helping illuminate some of it for us. Well, thank you very much. And I still think it's a marvelous world, even though there's some frightening things. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, and admire a psychad the next time you see one. Dr. Oliver Sacks, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The book is called Island of the Colorblind. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.